You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. This evening we come to verse 36. We'll read to verse 46. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. The Bible says this, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, And said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's go to our God together and ask His blessing tonight. Father in heaven, thank You for this time we have now, the fellowship with You and with each other around Your Holy Word. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this night, that He would work in our hearts, strengthening us to grasp the things that You have revealed. May you be at work in the preaching of the sermon and at work in the hearing and receiving of it. And may the result be good fruit in the lives of your people. And if it should please you tonight, Lord, even the salvation of someone who does not yet know your Son. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that immediately stands out to me as I read this section, as I look at our Lord's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, something that immediately stands out is the fact that though the Holy Spirit sets our attention on our Lord, He does so in a way that does not eliminate our Lord's relationship to His disciples. He means for us to see both of these things. We witness the burden of Jesus over His saving work of bearing the penalty for our sins. But we also witness the burden of Jesus in His shepherding work of guiding these men. And both are occurring in the very same scene. Jesus under the burden of the, of the, of the cross as it, as it is approaching, Jesus under the burden of concern and care for His men even as he is sorrowful to the point of death, contemplating him serving as our sin sacrifice. I can say to you this way, we're presented with a picture that calls both for our worship and a picture that informs our walk with God. We see Jesus as our sin bearer, our sin sacrifice. We see Him contemplating that and we worship Him, but we also see Jesus 
caring about his men, challenging them to learn lessons even in the midst of this. And in that way, we want to learn what he wanted them to learn. Information both for our worship and for our walk with God. As we look at these verses, we need to know that there is a great spiritual battle going on that we can't see. Satan's attack on the Son of God is not mentioned explicitly in these verses, but we know that Satan is at work. Christ's struggle is not described explicitly as a battle with temptation, but as we watch Jesus and listen to Jesus, we know that He has to triumph in the garden in order to save us on the cross. And if you think about these two things, Satan's activity and Christ's temptations, they actually both come to clear view when you listen to the Bible's setting of the context for what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. For example, we know that Satan is at work in the activity of Judas. Luke 22, verse 1, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So as Judas has this idea to approach the religious leaders and to sell out his Lord, Satan is so closely involved with this that he has entered into Judas. John chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garment, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and as you know, he goes on to wash their feet. But there John tells us that Satan had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. John 13 verse 25 says, So that disciple, speaking of John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who is it that's going to betray Jesus? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you what you're going to do, do quickly. So the initial idea, Satan enters into Judas. John comments about Satan having put this into Judas's heart. And then when it comes the time to actually go out and lead them to Jesus... Satan again enters into Judas. Our Lord references Satan's activity as he is approaching the Garden of Gethsemane. John 14, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So they leave the upper room to make their way out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming. He's talking about Satan. And then when they actually arrive to arrest Jesus, Luke 22, verse 53, what does Jesus say to those who have come out to arrest him? He says this, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. So if you listen to the Bible's descriptions that set the context for our verses, it is clear Satan is active in this scene. The same is true when we think about Christ being tempted here. We see our Lord tested when three times He goes to pray, and three times we witness a great struggle. And that struggle is described for us in a way that we see it's affected Him bodily. And He notes this struggle in what he says to others, he acknowledges the struggle vocally. We're given by the Spirit of God a summary of what his prayers contain, and in that prayer you hear his struggle. A summary of what he expressed to his disciples about his sorrow, and in that 
sharing with His disciples, you see His struggle. And then we'll see tonight that we're even given a testimony about His body, how it began to fail Him. And He acknowledges that even in our text when He says that He is sorrowful to the point of death. What is going on? Satan is resisting God's Son as he prepares to offer himself for our sins just as surely as he has resisted God's Son earlier. Resisting God's Son through Peter's mouth. Jesus telling His disciples about His suffering and Peter takes Him aside and begins to rebuke Him saying, Far be it from You, Lord. This shall never happen to You. You will not suffer. You will not die. What does Jesus say? Matthew 16, verse 23, He turns and says to Peter, Get behind Me, Satan. You are a hindrance to Me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, Satan is making use of your mouth. The very words that have come out of your mouth. Those words that would represent me not going to the cross, that reflects Satan's activity. This is not the mind of God. This is you putting your mind on the things of man. Satan resisted Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness, offering him three times a way to a kingdom without the cross, a way to a crown without the cross. And so here again, our Lord is experiencing Satan's resistance and He's being tempted. And we're going to see how He conquered. And yet at the same time, how He shepherded His men even in the moment of His great testing. So we see the love and the faithfulness of Jesus. We're going to see that tonight under three headings. I'll just mention them as we come to them. First of all, we see the Savior's grief. The Savior's grief, verses 36 through 38. Then Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. To the point of death, remain here and keep watch with me. He arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 36 tells us that he, he leaves eight of his disciples toward the entrance. Judas is not with him. Of course, he's gone to, to bring the horde that's going to arrest Jesus. Judas is not there. So that leaves 11 disciples. Eight are left at the entrance tells them what he's going to be doing. He's going to make his way into the garden for a time of prayer. By the way, how will Judas know where to find Jesus? He knows where to find Jesus because Jesus has done this often with his disciples. This is where they have gone often to be alone. John 18 verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So he arrives at the garden. He leaves eight of his disciples toward the entrance. He takes three into the garden as he goes to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John. Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Why does he take these three men? Because they form his inner circle. Throughout his ministry, you see Jesus dealing with these three men in an unusual way. He sets them forward as leaders among the twelve, and then of the three, he deals with Peter in a way that even gives Peter prominence among the three. It's a good reminder to us that even within a body of leaders, distinctions can exist and it be godly. This is our Lord's choice to deal with His men in the way that He does. And so the same three who witnessed His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration will now witness His agony in the garden. That's by Christ's choice. He confesses something to them. He confides to them in verse 38. He says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. We must never forget that our Lord is now truly human took to himself an additional nature, a real human nature. 
That's for the rest of eternity now. He is the perfect man, but He is truly a man and truly God. His divine nature explains that He is the eternal Son of God. His human nature explains that He's the Son of David. He is the Son of Man. One person, undivided, yet possessing two natures. And you see the true humanness of Jesus and that He wants someone to be with Him. He wants these men to share with Him in this moment of His testing. The lateness of the evening is seen in the sleepiness of these men. They cannot stay awake as we'll continue to see. But Jesus has no rest in His heart. The moment has arrived. He understands the necessity of prayer. This is so instructive for us that in this moment of His greatest testing to this point, what does He long for? He longs for prayer. What does He see the need to be at the moment? It is the need for prayer. Let us go to our Father in our moments of profound sadness. Let us go to our Father in the midst of temptations that pale in comparison with His. It can't even be compared to His. If He needed to pray, do we not need to pray? He is profoundly sad. It is not wrong to say He was grieving in a way that no one else ever has or ever will. No one has ever understood the sinfulness of sin more than the one who had no sin. No one has ever understood the awfulness of the wrath of God more than the one who had executed the wrath of God, the one who is God of very God. And so Jesus, looking forward to, contemplating what it's going to mean for Him to serve as our sin sacrifice, contemplating Himself as our sin bearer, taking upon Himself the judgment that our sins deserve, the wrath of God poured out upon Himself, there is this growing sense of sorrow and distress. The Bible says that this was a growing thing that he's experiencing. He began to be grieved. He began to be sorrowful, the Bible says. And so it seems that it's increasing. And he finally confesses to these three disciples the intensity of what he's feeling. My soul is very sad, deeply grieved, to the point even to death. So in that context of extreme sorrow, He asks His disciples to stay with Him. He asks His disciples to watch with Him, to pray. Matthew Henry said this, he said, the words used denote the most entire dejection, amazement, anguish, and horror of mind the state of one surrounded with sorrows, overwhelmed with miseries, and almost swallowed up with terror and dismay. John Phillips said this, he said, in effect, Jesus said to the three, if you can do nothing else, you can watch. He rarely spoke of his sorrow, but now he placed it before them. The surging seas of the sorrows of a world of sin were rolling in from the mighty deep and breaking in a thunderous surf on his soul. He had indeed become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, verse 3. What do we see? We see the Savior's grief. Second, we see the Savior's testing and teaching. He's being tested and yet amazingly, he's still teaching. Verse 39, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not, walk, could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. 
for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to, to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The sorrow is allowed by his Father. The sorrow is a part of the test that he had to pass to save us. Here is our great representative. Here is our great federal head. Here is our great substitute. And he has to pass this test in a garden that's under a curse because our first father failed the test in a garden that existed in a paradise. Where Adam failed, Jesus must triumph. This is no ordinary sorrow. This is no ordinary moment. And so if he's to save us at the cross, he must triumph over temptation in the garden. And he's tested three times. The first time of prayer we see in verses 39 through 41. Luke tells us he had gone from the disciples about a stone's toss away. And that when he went away to pray the first time, he had then exhorted his men to pray lest they fall into temptation. Luke 22 verse 40, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The extraordinary nature of what we're witnessing is seen in something else that Luke tells us about. He tells us that our Lord's struggle was so great that his body began to fail him. Here in our text, Jesus says to his disciples that he's sorrowful even to death or to the point of death. And Luke's account tells us that is no exaggeration because his body is beginning to break down so much so that he required the help of an angel. Luke 22 verse 43 says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In our scripture reading tonight, we heard from the author of Hebrews, where he describes the intensity of our Lord's prayers. The Holy Spirit of God, through the writer of Hebrews, tells us this, Hebrews 5 verse 7, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries. I mean, this is no mild moment, is it? As He expresses to His disciples the intensity of His sorrow, even to the point of death, His body breaking down, sweating as it were great drops of blood, and He's crying loudly, and He's weeping. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Jesus, looking beyond His death to the resurrection, and His Father hears Him. What was the greatest battle that Jesus was wrestling with? He tells us in His prayers, doesn't He? He tells us what He's wrestling with. Verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Yet not as I will, but as You will. Verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44, he prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. Three times he is saying, is there any other way? This was the battle in his temptation in the wilderness, as I said a moment ago. A crown without a cross, is that possible? This is where Satan resists him through the mouth of Peter. You will not die. Is there a way to do the will of God without dying in our stead? And here it is again. If you ask, what is this cup? The answer is, it's the cup of the wrath of God. It is the cup of suffering and dying in our stead. The Old Testament many places describes God's wrath in terms of a cup 
to be ingested, to be taken in. Psalm 75, verse 2, one example of this. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars, Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The wicked will drain down the cup of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath. And so the prayer of Jesus amounts to this. Is there any other way? Must the sinless Son of God become our sin sacrifice if we're to be saved? Must the perfect Son of God feel the mysterious abandonment from His Father that He gives voice to on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is there any other way than that? Again, Matthew Henry is so good on this. He says, Scripture ascribes His heaviest sufferings, Christ's sufferings. Scripture ascribes His heaviest sufferings to the hand of God. He had full knowledge of the infinite evil of sin and of the immense extent of that guilt for which He was to atone with awful views of the divine justice and holiness and the punishment deserved by the sins of men, such as no tongue can express or mind conceive. At the same time, Christ suffered being tempted. Probably horrible thoughts were suggested by Satan that tended to gloom and every dreadful conclusion. These would be the more hard to bear from His perfect holiness. And did the load of imputed guilt so weigh down the soul of Him of whom it is said, He upholdeth all things by the word of His power? Into what misery then must those sink whose sins are left upon their own heads? How will those escape who neglect so great salvation? Henry, describing the agony of our Savior, says, well, then what agony will those experience who reject His offering for sinners? What kind of agony will people experience who reject Christ as Savior? Again, Philip says this, Satan had come to Jesus in the wilderness years ago and offered Him the crown without the cross. Satan, using Peter's voice, had come to Him again at Caesarea Philippi. When He had first broached the subject of the cross to His disciples, Peter had said, Be it far from Thee, Lord. Now Satan was back again, lurking in the dark shadows beyond the moonlight. He was whispering, Not the cross. And what was it that filled His cup with horror? Was it the cross? Any man would shrink from the cross. For it was a dreadful way to die. But many had died that way and many more would. No, it was not the physical means of death that caused him to sweat blood. It was our sin. It was the thought of being made sin, of dying for sin, of being accursed of God. It was the thought of being alone with no eye to pity him and no hand to save. The Lord soon had a bitter taste of that appalling loneliness where he found Peter, James, and John all sound asleep. I want you to note, though, that even in our Lord's great agony, you see His concern and His compassion for His men. He's concerned about their spiritual victory. He had, we saw in Luke's account, He had told them when He first went away to pray, pray that you may not fall into temptation. And now, in our text, when he finds them sleeping, what does he say? He's just prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? I want you to save those words in your mind. We'll come back to them in just a moment. He goes on to say, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. There's his concern for them. Even in his agony, he's concerned for their spiritual victory. 
And you also hear what a compassionate shepherd we have. Because what does he say? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That is, he acknowledges that you can have desires in your heart that are genuine and sincere. The spirit is willing, and yet he notes their weakness and their frailty. And how in the weakness of their flesh, their failures are so often explained. He is not without understanding. He is not without compassion. Even when he must rebuke, he does so in a way that's encouraging. And the fact that he says this to Peter, that Peter is singled out, is instructive also. It's as if our Lord is saying, Peter, you said you would die for me. Now you can't even stay awake with me. Can you not stay awake for an hour? You would go to prison for me, you would die for me, but you can't watch with me? So that added, as Phillips noted, added to the struggle itself is the reality that he's alone. He carries these three with him into the garden that he might not be alone, but even there he is alone because they can't even stay awake. Notice his second time of prayer, verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. His battle is the same. Thank God his submission is the same. His obedience is the same. His resolve is the same. Gives voice to his desires and submits his desires to the will of his Father. Not my will, but your will be done. But sadly, his disciples are the same. Even as we saw this morning, the story of disciples is not that we are heroes. The story of disciples is that we are rescued ones. They didn't just fail at the end when they all flee. They were failing in the process. They can't even stay awake. They don't have a good explanation either. In Mark 14, verse 40, it says, And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. What do you say? And then note his third time of prayer, verse 44, And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to, to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? He is all alone. They sleep while he struggles. They sleep while he seeks the face of his father. They sleep while he's looking in the face of what he dreads. And yet he continues to submit to the will of God. The Savior's grief, the Savior's testing and teaching. That's what's amazing. In the midst of his testing, he's still shepherding his sheep. Third, we see the Savior's triumph. Does he pass the test? Will he pass the test? Indeed he does. Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, look, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Get up. Verse 46, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Time for sleeping and resting for you is over. The time of my testing has been passed, and now we get up and I walk forward to what will lead to the cross and to my offering for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body which is for you. This is my blood which is for you. And now he says, let's get up and walk forward because the time of my betrayer has come. Interesting, isn't it, in verse 45, that he describes himself in these third-person terms. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He wants his disciples to recognize that what is happening is the fulfillment of Scripture. He sees himself in these terms. What is happening to him is fulfilling Scripture. He wants his men to understand what is happening is the fulfillment of Scripture. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners, just as God ordained. God is sovereign even as men are responsible. 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2.23 The one who betrays me is here. Judas has arrived. And we'll see Christ's interaction with Judas next time. But as we finish tonight, I want to mention five things that we must not miss from these verses. First of all, we must not miss the awfulness of sin. Isn't this something that believers battle with on a regular basis? We know intellectually, we know theologically, we know biblically that our sins are exceedingly sinful. That in the sight of a holy God, they are exceedingly hateful. And yet, how often do you and I give space to those sins for which our Lord had to die in order to save us for God? How can we witness His agony over what it means to be our sin-bearer and then treat our sins lightly. The only reason the sinfulness of your sin doesn't break in upon you to a degree it would destroy you is mercy and blindness. Because to see things as clearly as Jesus saw them is to agonize over the awfulness of sin. Are our sins awful to us? Do they grieve us? We know the one who denies that he has any sin is someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God. The one who would say he has never sinned is someone who is still a stranger to God. We know that saved people are confessors of sin, but that's the point, isn't it? Saved people are confessors of sin. You don't go on in it. You recognize it, and it grieves you. And you say about it the same thing God says about it. And so you agree with God and turn from it. And yes, it is a lifetime of that until you're glorified. But it is a lifetime of that. Are you recognizing the awfulness of your sin? And are you confessing it? Second, we must not miss the fearfulness of God's wrath. Christ sweating as it were, great drops of blood, body breaking down under the agony of the awareness of what this will mean. Why? Because he understands not only the sinfulness of sin with a clarity unlike any, any one of us ever could, but he understands the wrath of God in a way that we don't fully grasp. Oh, what joy should fill our hearts. What gratefulness should characterize our lives when we recognize God has saved us from God's wrath. That God, by the finished work of His Son, has delivered us from Himself in terms of His wrath. From Himself for Himself. From His wrath for His glory. From His wrath for His family. From His wrath for fellowship with Him. What joy should characterize our lives? What gratefulness should characterize our living knowing that He has rescued us from His own wrath? How can we see our Lord's agony in the garden and not see how awful the wrath of God is? Third, we must see the strength and the glory of our great Savior. He knows temptation in a way you and I will never know it. I've heard others say it, and it's true. The reason why we can know for sure that Jesus knew temptation in a way that we never will is because God regulates our temptations. He knows what we are able to take and what we are not able to take, and He never allows us to be tempted beyond what we're able to pass the test. His Son had no such limitations so that he felt the full ability of Satan in this spiritual struggle. And yet, 
the sinlessness of Jesus is on full display. As He said, the ruler of this world comes, but He has nothing in me. The offer is set before Christ, but there's nothing within Christ that is drawn out to the offer. In our Lord is perfect submission to His Father, perfect desire to obey His Father, perfect joy in the will of God. There is nothing there to be found. And here we see His strength as He passes the test, His human nature shrinking from the concept of the suffering and yet His perfect humanity on display as He remains perfectly submitted every step of the way. Not my will, but Your will be done. Where Adam failed, the last Adam succeeds. And that is how we are saved. Fourth, I've noted it, but I want to underscore it. We must see the love and compassion of our great shepherd. Here are his disciples failing him once more. But he loves them. Here they are failing him once more. But he doesn't give up on them. He's continuing to teach them. To warn them, yes, but also to encourage them. The Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Aren't we grateful for our Savior's patience toward us? Do we recognize we meet with it every day? If you're like me, the older I get, the longer I walk with Christ, the more I know the Word of God, the more I contemplate the truth, the more I'm amazed that He loves me like He does. And I'm grateful for His patience toward me. It's as though all my sins throughout all my life stand out in neon. But praise be to God, what also stands out is His grace that is greater than all our sins. Think about your thoughts throughout your lifetime. Think about your attitudes throughout your lifetime. Think about your motives throughout your lifetime. Think about things you should have done, but you didn't do. Think about things you shouldn't have done, but you did. Think about opportunities wasted. And then ask yourself, how does He love me? The way that He does. But He does. And here we see, we must not miss this, the model, even as our Lord saves us, He is also, and the New Testament applies this again and again, He also shows us the way to pass our own tests. He is the model, therefore the means, by which we learn how to have spiritual victories. What do we see in our Lord in this scene that helps us in our time of testing? Let me mention a few things that should help us. The next time we are aware that we are facing temptation. First of all, we must be characterized by humble expectations. If our Lord suffered like this, why should we be kept from suffering as we follow Him, as we're identified with Him? What do you expect, Christian? Do you expect to go to heaven in a way that involves no suffering when Christ suffered to save you? Charles Spurgeon saying this in a way that only he could said this. He was actually reflecting on reading a Catholic writer that he thought must have been regenerate. And he was talking about the grace of God that could save people even in an apostate church. And he said this, here's what he read from the Catholic writer, shall that body which has a thorn-crowned head have delicate, pain-fearing members. Thinking of the body of Christ, spiritually speaking, you have the head who is Jesus, the question was, shall that body which has a thorn-crowned head have delicate, pain-fearing members? God forbid. Spurgeon says, that remark went straight to my heart at once. I thought how often the children of God shun pain, reproach, and rebuke. 
and think it to be a strange thing when some fiery trial happens to them. If they would but recollect that their head had to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, and that their head was crowned with thorns, it would not seem strange to them that the members of His mystical body also have to suffer. If Christ had been some delicate person, if our glorious head had been reposing upon the soft pillow of ease, then might we, who are members of His church, have expected to go through this world with joy and comfort. But if He must be bathed in His own blood, if the thorns must pierce His temples, if His lips must be parched, and if His mouth must be dried up like a furnace, shall we escape suffering and agony? Ah, no, we must be conformed unto our Lord in His humiliation, if we would be made like Him also in His glory. Close quote. Is that your expectation? As the apostles told the churches, the young churches being established throughout their missionary journeys, they would go back and they would remind them that through many tribulations we will make our way to the kingdom of God. We're going to face many troubles. Is that your humble expectation? One of the keys to spiritual victory is not having a set of expectations that are wrongly informed. Does it surprise you? Does suffering surprise you? Or are you ready for it? You know it's coming. Second, honest struggle. I don't pretend to be able to enter into the mystery of it when Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. This is the Son of God. His human will is perfect. Yet He gives expression to some sort of struggle. And one of the ways that we overcome in our test is not to try to pretend. Rather to look full in the face of that which is testing us and say, yes, this is a struggle. This is hard. This is what I am feeling at the moment, but not my will. Your will be done, Lord. That's how you overcome. How much of what takes place in professed Christianity is an act. It is something we are trying, and I'm not meaning with bad motives, it is something we are trying to live out instead of recognizing, put away the pretense, be honest about right where you are, and then choose obedience. Then submit your heart and your will to the will of God as it is given in Scripture. That's the way to victory. Third, earnest prayer. Humble expectations. Not surprised by suffering. Honesty in my struggle. And then I get on my knees. I pray because I understand, as our Lord warned His disciples, if you don't pray, you're going to fall into temptation. Prayer is necessary to spiritual victory. Do we see that? Do we understand that? Are, are we driven to talk to God as we begin to struggle? Or is our first response to talk to everybody else? Let me tell everybody else how I'm struggling. Now, uh, now don't miss this. Our Lord confided in His disciples. It's not wrong to tell someone else you're struggling unless that's as far as it goes. Because to tell each other that we're struggling, but not talk to God, not to go to God with our, our, our problems, our struggles, that would be to fail. That would be to fall into temptation. Earnest prayer. Fourth, submissive ambition. What do you really want? If you're conflicted, the book of James talks about this, if I'm a double-minded man, I'm not going to receive anything from God. So I'm asking, is our ambition in whatever it is we're facing, is it singular? Can we say, what I want to do is pass the test? What I want to do is obey my Heavenly Father. What I want to do is do the will of God. Now my prayers will be rightly informed, you see? 
Now my prayers will match the will of God. Is my ambition in the situation submissive? Therefore, you hear me quote this verse often, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we have as our ambition, singular, to be pleasing to Him. Whether in the body or out of the body, whether on this side of heaven or standing before the Lord one day, we have one ambition, to please Him. And we all know that we fail in that ambition so often. But that must be our goal. Lord, what I want in whatever I'm going through is to do what pleases You. Fifth, enduring resolve. Christ is not tested once. He's tested three times. And three times He keeps saying the same thing. I love the way that Matthew summarizes it. Verse 44, And He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. He just keeps saying the same thing. His resolve doesn't change. May the Lord do that in us. Lord, I keep feeling the weight of this thing. It seems like it's never going to go away. But I'm still saying the same thing. Not my will, but your will be done. Oh, that I would please you in this time of testing. The last thing I'll note, Christ is our model. Even as He is looking to His Father, He is looking at His disciples. How often in the midst of our temptations, our tests, our struggles, our problems, how often is it that we cease to be concerned about what anybody else is going through. It's like, this is my issue, so now nothing matters. But what's going on with me? And there is our Lord in the midst of His greatest agony, His greatest testing, and He is shepherding and teaching and watching over these men whom He will keep watch over until the day that He passes them off to the Spirit of God who will be their helper after He ascends into heaven. Praise for us in John 17. Father, keep them in your name. The men who've been with me. I've kept them until now. Keep them. Praying, interceding for us. Loved His own all the way to the end, you see. Never losing sight of these men whom He loved. May that serve as a model for us that no matter what it is we're going through, there's still someone else to care for. Our eyes are on the Lord, but our eyes are on others. Our eyes are on the Lord, but our eyes are on others. What a marvelous Savior. What a glorious Savior. To Him be all praise and honor and glory, majesty, authority. The story of us is not the story of heroes. The story of us is the story of rescued ones. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank You that our Savior triumphed. Thank you that He has saved us from our sins, from your wrath, for you, forever, by virtue of His perfect obedience and then His substitutionary death. And you raised Him from the dead. He lives and so we live. Safe in His hand, safe in yours. You never let us go so that now and forever our mouths will be full of praise to You for an amazing, gracious, saving work in our case. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen.